All right. Um, as of last class period, we had finished the section on the traditional theistic arguments. Um, and so tonight we're going to talk about something really that we've, we've hinted at from a number of different directions already, uh, transcendental theistic proof. We've, we've talked, like I said, we, we have addressed this, whether we've used exactly that language uh, yet or not. I know we've, 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 we've touched on it already. We're going to talk about what it means to have a transcendental argument, what the transcendental argument for the existence of God is, and then, uh, at, for, the, for the rest of the class period, I want to talk about how to, um, how to in, a, in a very practical way, when you're in conversation with, with someone who is uh, demanding an answer, to turn the conversation toward transcendental argument. Okay? So that, that's, that's really the structure that we're, we're going after. So I have a section here, History of Transcendental Arguments. Um, for what it's worth, and, and we'll just let you know where we're going and, and then back up. Uh, Van Til, who I've mentioned before, is, is, is really the man who formulated what we are calling the transcendental argument for the existence of God. Uh, just a bit of trivia, sometimes you'll see this online, abbreviated TAG, T-H-E, transcendental argument for God. Um, but uh, Van Til was in the habit of and this is, remember we talked at the beginning of class that Van Til is not always the easiest guy to read. One of the reasons that he's not always easy to read is he was very fond of taking uh, philosophical terms that other people had already used and redefining them for his own purposes. Okay? Which, if you, have, if you don't know philosophy, you can get lost in the terminology. If you do know philosophy, you can get confused because he's using the terms in a different way than you're used to. Transcendental argumentation is not something original to Van Til. Okay? He's going to repurpose it. So let's talk about the concept in general, and then we'll talk about its specific use in apologetics. I say here, and we, we talked about this before, the history of philosophy is the record of thinkers trying to unite the particulars of experience to the universals of rational thought. And we called this the what problem? Remember? This is the problem of the one and the many, right? One and the many problem. Everything in life is a one and the many problem. All right? Put leaky no, it's not the leaky bucket. No, but this, the one and the many problem. How are we to... You know, it's again, it's with the desks. All of these things are different, and yet we lump them all into one category. We feel justified in doing that, but the more we think about it, the harder it is to explain how it is that we do what we do there. Um, but it seems essential if we're going to have anything like knowledge, right? It's not useful to me to know every detail of this particular object. Uh, I need to be able to generalize it so that I recognize others of the same class. Uh, but it, from the other perspective, if I keep generalizing and generalizing and generalizing, I don't know any specifics. Um, so useful knowledge has to do with the, un the uniting of universals and particulars, the one and the many. I say here, this is not the place to do a full history of philosophy. We've already very briefly sketch that, right? We had Plato as a representative of making universals the main thing. William of Ockham 
found that the representative of making particulars the main thing. Suffice it to say at this point, however, that because both the rationalists, Plato's a rationalist, right, the ideas are what's real, the universals, ideas. The idea of the river is more real than the changing river, okay? The rationalists and the empiricists, empiricists rely on what? Sense experience, okay? Empiricism is all about sense experience. Both the rationalists and the empiricists attempt to make man the ultimate reference point for truth. They are unable to unite universals and particulars, right? And we've seen that. Uh, if, if, as long as my mind is the final authority, I'm, I'm left in the skeptical quandary. Uh, I never know if the next thing that I discover is going to undermine everything else that I thought I knew. Uh, and so uh, I attempt to uh, be rational and, and put together this fine system of rationality, but my fine system of rationality is floating on an ultimate sea of irrationality. Everything that I don't know that, lay, that, is, that, that is out there outside my little island of rationality you know, I'm, I'm building this wonderful structure, but it's floating on I don't know what. And that's just the point. I can't know. If I'm the final reference point, what I don't know is unknown. Um, because of this, they have no foundation for knowledge at all. So we've seen David Hume, a Scottish skeptic, stated the logical results of the philosophical endeavor in his expression of doubts about induction. Okay. Induction is, is the idea of trying to reason from particulars to a universal. Um, so, and, and, and we see the, the problems with that, right? With the ball. I take the ball and I tip my hand and it falls. I tip, and and it's, I, I don't care how many millions and millions of times I do it, I cannot know if induction, if, if empirical data is the only way to gain knowledge, I can't know that the next time I hit my hand, the ball is going to fall. Something may be different, right? Gravity may shut off the next time. And I, I, there's nothing in experience that could prepare me for that. Um, so, so Hume has doubts about induction. He says induction can't get us to the sort of truth that we want. Hume demonstrated that no amount of particulars ever give one certainty about universals. This is not only true for events, but also for objects, like chairs, right? Uh, what, what color are blackbirds? Well, everyone that I've seen has been black, but maybe that next blackbird won't be, right? It'll be an albino blackbird. You know, again, there, there's all sorts of exceptions. Or, you know, that one just had a bucket of red paint. Uh, dumped on it, you know. All the seagulls are white, except for the ones that were by the Exxon Valdez. You know, it's, it's that kind of thing. How do I know? Right? How do I know? In response to Hume, alright, now here's where we get to transcendentals. Immanuel Kant, um, I'm, I'm not going to profess to be any sort of expert on Kant. I will say that Kant is probably the single most influential philosopher of the last 300 years, okay? Um, Kant has been taken in all sorts of interesting directions. Um, I think almost all of them are dead ends, uh, and, and, and in some directions that seem to totally exclude each other. But, but Kant's big project, Kant said this, that Hume awakened him out of his dogmatic slumbers. Isn't that Kant? 
In other words, Kant thought everything was, you know, in terms of the, the, the project of knowing, Kant thought that everything was kind of hunky-dory, and then he read Hume and went, whoa, we've got problems here. And so Kant, Kant decided, uh, well, let's, let's see here, Kant wanted to find a basis for knowledge that lay back of human experience. Kant sought, here's uh, key words here, the necessary preconditions for knowledge. In other words, here's what Kant's doing. Kant's saying, all right, if all I can know uh, comes to me through sense experience, Hume is right. And, and we're at an intellectual dead end here. But, Kant says, it seems clear to me that what Hume has said is impossible. Right? You know, Hume says we can't know anything, that, that, that everything we do is mere custom. You know, we're, we're accustomed to drawing these kind of conclusions. We're accustomed to thinking that because the sun has risen every morning of our lives, that it's going to rise tomorrow. And, and so Hume says we, we can live by these customs, but, but really that can't be knowledge. And Kant says, you know, I, I understand what you're saying, Kant, but re or Hume, Kant says, I, I see what you're saying there, Hume, but there's got to be a sense in which we can say legitimately we know the sun's going to rise tomorrow. Okay? You can sympathize with what Kant's doing here. And so he's, he wants to ask the question, what has to be true if I know? Does that, does that make sense? So you see how he's going a, a, di a different direction. Kant, or Hume is saying, we know things on the basis of sense experience. If that's true, we don't know anything, essentially. Kant, Kant says, okay, let's look at it backwards. Let's assume we do know things. What has to be true for that to be true? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so I say, uh, assuming that we do in fact know things, Kant sought to articulate a basis that, if it were assumed, would give reason to believe that our believings are actually knowledge. Kant believed that he found these necessary preconditions in his categories. Um, and that's an important, important word for Kant, not so important for what we're doing tonight, but just so you know where Kant went with it. Um, aspects of the mind that mold experience based on already established criteria such as time and space. In other words, what Kant said is this, I have uh, categories in my mind, like, like time, like space, and my experiences come in and if it was just experience left to itself, I would have all these problems. But the experiences come in and they're kind of filtered through the categories. And when they're filtered through the categories, that allows me to know things. Okay? Like I said, we don't need to get into the details of it. But that's, that's uh, the essence of Kant, that we have the, the categories already in our mind that, that make, these, make our experiences make sense to us. Okay? Um, I say, unfortunately, Kant's thesis is also flawed, primarily because his ultimate reference point is still found within man. Let me, let me uh, just really briefly uh, touch on what Kant left us with. Kant basically said, we can divide all of reality into, into two uh, categories. I shouldn't use that word there because category is a specific word, but you get what I'm doing here, okay? You can divide all of reality into two categories. The phenomenal 
which doesn't mean outstanding, it means it's something that we can experience, it's a phenomenon, okay? The phenomenal realm and the noumenal realm, okay? And in the noumenal realm are things that are not directly experienced. So, uh, Kant says, in the phenomenal realm is my experience of this death. Okay, so the, the, de I, the desk has a certain feel to it, it looks a certain way, it tastes a certain way, whatever. All right. Again, I'm not in the habit of tasting desks, but I assume it does. Um, that is in the, the realm of experience. But, concept, do I ever experience the desk itself? The concept says, no, I experience my experience of the desk. Does that make sense? How do, I, how do I know what the desk is in itself? And Kant says you can't know that. All I can ever know is my experience of the desk. So perhaps this seat is a different color than what I'm experiencing of it. I can't know that. I can't get outside my experience to see what it is in itself. Does that make sense? Um, and, and so Kant says, things in themselves are in the noumenal realm. They're in the realm of things I can't experience. Well, you can see how this, this takes us in, in some pretty radically different directions. One thought, what, what Kant is famous for is saying he, he wanted to save science and, but make room for faith. Okay? So, so here's, here's what Kant thought he did. Kant says, Science belongs to the realm of the phenomena, right? The things that I can sense and, and taste and kick and whatever. This, I can do science there, but faith is in the realm of the noumenal. It's the things that transcend experience. And, and you have friends who believe that, whether or not they've read Kant, right? That science handles the things of nature and matter, and faith handles the things that, that go beyond science. You, you see how influential Kant is. Um, really, if you keep pressing Kant's categories, uh, because we can never know the thing out there, which includes things like God or whatever, you, but, but it also includes the desk, that all I can know is my experience. Is my experience of the desk the same thing as your experience of the desk? How would you know? I, I, I can't know. And, and, and it certainly... It, it doesn't seem like it is, right? Is it, Do I experience your experience of the death? No, I don't. Um, do you see how this very quickly leads to pure relativism? That the only thing we have access to is our own experiences. Uh, and since no one has access to the truth, everyone has his own truth. Okay, that's really where Kant, I think, leaves us. Kant leaves us on the road to pure relativism. Right? Th that makes sense. So what Kant was trying to do is answer Hume. Hume says, we can't know anything. Kant says, I've got an answer to that. I think Kant's answer is bad. But what Van Til is going to do is pick up um, Kant's language and Kant's concept 
and I think give us a, a Christian answer that is actually satisfactory. Right? So, so we're together so far. Transcendental argument then for the existence of God. The transcendental argument for the existence of God follows Kant in his basic methodology, but insists that Kant will run afoul of the same problems of empiricism and rationalism if he uses man as the foundation point for knowledge. We've already seen that, right? Van Til agrees with Kant that we must have something back of rationality and sense experience that allows us to connect the universals to the particulars of our experience. Right? However, what is back of rationality and, sen and sensation is not categories of the mind. You see how that still makes man ultimate? If it's categories of the mind. Rather, it is God himself that brings the universals and particulars of experience together, making knowledge possible. Um, and, and really, ultimately, we need the entire Christian story as the background. Christianity as a whole needs to be true if we're going to have any knowledge whatsoever. I need the creator-creature distinction. I need an, a, an omniscient God who knows because he has decreed. Right? That's the kind of God I need actually to make knowledge possible. And that's... You, you, you see where we get this language then? I have to presuppose that whole Christian story as, here's the language, the necessary precondition of knowledge, the necessary precondition of intelligibility. Uh, or you'll hear Bonson say in his debate with Stein, to, to even predicate one thing of another. In other words, for me to say that death is red and tan and you know metallic or whatever, that's predicating. I, I'm saying this is true of that. And, and what Van Til is, is telling us is, I can't make a statement like that unless Christianity is already true. Um, Van Til is adamant that every fact in the universe, rightly understood, points to God. Right? I can't even know the desk. So in order for me to understand the desk, Christianity has to be true. So my starting point can be any particular fact. And, and I'll explain why that is shortly. Therefore, there is no sh shortage of starting points for the apologist. Um, you know, where do we, wh what do we need to be talking about to do apologetics? And Van Til's answer is really anything. Everything is evidence for God. Because unless God exists, nothing makes sense. However, it is often easiest to find some sort of universal concept, one that needs an obvious outside foundation, which the unbeliever cannot live without. And I'll, I'll talk about what I mean by that shortly. Um, for instance, the unbeliever's sense of morality. Well, let me let me let me pause here. All right. So so let's get to a, a bit of the the practice of what this is going to look like. Um, I mentioned um, in the last couple of weeks that <coughs> um, if I I've already got the title for my first book. Right, I don't have the book written, but I've got the title. And it's, it's called Ought, right? What I want to do when I'm discussing apologetics is, is uncover the oughts of the unbeliever. Okay? 
Um, and those can come in, in, in a number of categories. Okay? Here are the three basic ones. If you want three basic categories in which you're going to find the ought of the unbelievers, it's these three, and if you're familiar with Greek philosophy at all, these, or, or the philosophy in general, these will be very familiar to you. They will be the categories of truth, goodness, and beauty. Truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, if, if we want to uh, make a nice little diagram here, these correspond to three elements of man's being. Uh, man as mind, which is truth. Man as will, which is goodness or morality. Right? And, and uh, man as emotion or affections. And that's our sense of beauty, our sense of aesthetic appreciation. Right, you, you see these. You see these three categories. It is in these three categories, uh, and they're, they, they interact with one another. We can't separate them entirely, right? Uh, two plus two equals four. Uh, is that so? Here's the question: Is that a statement of truth, morality, or beauty? It seems true, like truth, right? That seems the obvious category. Is there a sense in which 2 plus 2 equals 4 is a statement of morality? If you add 2 plus 2, what ought you get? 4. And there's something amiss if you don't get 4. Now, it may be that you don't get 4 because you don't understand that would be a, a, an issue of the intellect. But maybe you put down five because you're stubborn. That's an issue of morality, right? And there's, there, there's not always a clean separation between those. Um, is there any sense in which two plus two equals four is an issue of aesthetics? And there is something really not looking right about it. That is, it would be very jarring. I don't know if any of you are math people at all. Um, if, if I told people if I didn't do theology, doing abstract math, I think would have been a field that I would have enjoyed. Um, you know, perhaps some form of engineering where, where, where an applied math, but even abstract math, I think is is fascinating, because and, and as, as much as you may have hated geometry or algebra or whatever, maybe you did like it. I, I don't know, but you do have to admit. There is a beauty in the in the way that the numbers work. Does that make sense? You know, you do geometry, and if the shape is, is, is you know, if, if the three sides are there, they're going to follow Pythagoras' theorem. And, and that's there's there's a there's an intellectual cognitive element of that, but there's also something aesthetically pleasing about that. And that, and that you ought to appreciate the aesthetic um, fitness of that, right? Whereas someone who delights in disorder, okay, delight now, we're talking aesthetics, we're talking issues of beauty. If someone delights in disorder, there's something amiss there, right? Um, you know, and, and, and it, it may be a trivial example, but, but 
But if, if, I were, if I were teaching and I'm drawing shapes up on the board and I leave all my shapes just slightly disconnected, right? Or you ever, you ever have this, this irritates some students. I use an example from the classroom here. You ever have a teacher uh, wrote a bunch of things up on the chalkboard and then he starts erasing it and leaves little bits of, uh, of his letters up on the board? Does that irritate you? To, to some degree, now, it, it may be petty. It may be petty. But the reality is, if, and, and, and I, I have to confess, I've done this. I've left little bits of things up on the board just to irritate people, right? As, as a teacher, you, you write a bunch of stuff on the board, and then you know it's going to get some people, and so you, you erase part of it. Now, if there was a student that, was, that, that thought, I just love when he does that, there's something skewed about that, isn't there? Right? There's a sense that that's, that's not it. And, and, and frankly, um, aesthetic, or aesthetic considerations actually lay back of a lot of our science. So, for instance, <coughs> does the sun go around the earth or does the earth go around the sun? Well, the relativism would say that the relativist would say it does. Either one works. Now, here's here's the the reality. In a sense, he's right. Right? If and, and, and so this this gets this gets a little hairy here. But if 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 we had him sitting right there in his desk, and I start walking around him in a circle, right? And Alicia starts walking around him in a triangle. And one of someone else of you starts walking around him in an octagon. Okay, so we've got all three of us walking around. I'm walking in a perfect circle. Alicia's walking in a triangle. Someone else is walking in an octagon. What is going to be the simplest reference point of the four of us to diagram the motions? What is going to be the simplest reference point to diagram those motions? You will be. Right? The center point is going to be the, the cleanest way to do that. But the reality is, I could make myself the reference point. And, and it'd be easy enough to maybe diagram my motion relative to him, but then I've got to diagram my motion relative to the other moving person. And, and then the other moving person as well. Now those are going to be really hairy, ugly formulas. Right? And so the reason we prefer the one rather than the other is not because one's more true than the other. It's that one is more aesthetically pleasing than the other. Does that make sense? And we're wired that way. We know that those three categories of truth and of beauty and of goodness impose responsibilities on us. We, we tend to think of ought and responsibility purely as a moral category. And, and, and I have, there's one professor, I've mentioned the John Frame lectures on apologetics that are available on iTunes. They're very good. He actually suggests that we can reduce all of apologetics to the, the morality issue. Uh, we probably can. Um, I'm, I'm reluctant to do that. I, I'm inclined to say that there is an ought of the intellect, there is an ought of the will, and there is an ought of the emotions or the affections. 
aesthetic consideration, maybe that's equivalent to saying it's all morality, but I think it's worthwhile to just make those distinctions. But our oughts are going to be found in those categories. The unbelievers' oughts are going to be found in those categories. The unbeliever is convinced that certain things are true. And whenever someone says X is true, he is making a claim that what? You ought to believe it. Do you, do you see that? And so when the, when the unbeliever even says there is no truth, what claim is he making? You ought to believe there is no truth. Okay? There is an ought embedded in any propositional truth claim. There is obviously an ought embedded anytime the unbeliever says, this, this is what is good for you to do. And I don't care if we agree, I mentioned this last week, I don't care, I don't care if we agree with the unbeliever or not. Right? Al Gore says, you know, you, you should do everything you can to reduce your carbon footprint. There's an ought. Okay? There's an ought there. Um, he, he's also going to have intellectual claims he's going to impose on you. Because you ought to believe that the earth is getting warmer and that humans are the cause of it. Now, frankly, I don't care in this context whether he's right or wrong about that. From an apologetic point of view, all I care about is that he has an ought. Okay. <clears throat> Alicia, can I get a thing to suck on here? The reason that I care about that is that the unbelieving worldview does not provide the foundation for him to make that sort of claim. Okay. Um, If the universe is matter and motion and energy and time and chance, right? Uh, matter, motion, time and chance. Um, uh, I, I, I think I mentioned last week uh, there's a <coughs> DVD of a, a, a DVD documentary that just came out. I just got my copy today and watched it called Collision. Okay. It's a uh, record of three days of debates between a, uh, a Presbyterian minister named Doug Wilson and an atheist named Christopher Hitchens. Uh, fair warning, there, there is at least uh, two instances of uh, inappropriate language used, uh, once by Hitchens and once by Wilson. Um, uh, but... And, and the, uh, I, I will also say this, the guy who put the film together wanted to be kind of edgy in his film style, so you get a lot of the kind of the bouncy camera angles and the zoom in on people's nose, and the, um, frankly, you'd be more profited by watching it like with your blindfolded. You know, just listen to the audio, it's, it's a little bit better. Anyway, um, but, but Wilson said this, uh, both in the in the video and in, in some things that I've read, uh, that, that Hitchens, the atheist, would fault us 
for believing in God. And, and, and Wilson says, you know what, if Hitchens is right, my belief in God is simply what an organism does, an organism like me does at this temperature, at this state. Does that make sense? In, in other words, if Hitchens is right, and, and everything is purposeless matter in motion, my believing in God just is. It doesn't mean anything, right? And his not believing in God just is. Um, and things that just are have no ought to them. Okay, I'll, I'll illustrate it this way. We are... Concerned. Now, I don't want to get into this debate deeply, but but I'll throw this out there as an illustration. There are there are some in this nation, in this world, that are trying very hard to show that uh, being homosexual, for instance, is a natural condition, right? Something genetic, uh, something based on chemicals in the womb, whatever. The reason that that is a point of research, is that if being homosexual is a purely natural thing, if it just is, we have a hard time saying that it ought not be. Um, any more than we would fault someone uh, on any sort of moral level for getting cancer, right? Uh, assuming that they weren't doing something, you know, smoking or whatever that, that would lead to getting cancer. Uh, if someone, you know, lives a, a, a normal, healthy life and they get cancer, we don't go, you, you know, immoral person, I can't believe that you, you failed in that way. I mean, that, it's unthinkable. Because those sorts of things happen. If everything just happens, Nothing has any meaning. There is no ought, right? In the sort of universe where stuff just happens, where it's all matter, motion, time, and chance, and everything just exists, a bang happened and everything rolls out inevitably from that bang. What is, is. And, and who's to sit in judgment of that? It doesn't even make sense to sit in judgment of that. Right? Does that make sense? Um, you know, in, 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 a, in a billion years from now, in, in, you know, whatever, however many billions of years from now, on an evolutionary model, when our sun goes out and life on this earth ends, did it all mean anything? On an evolutionary model, the answer is no. We were an accident. We came, we lived, we died, and it's, you know, sound and fear signifying nothing. Right? And if that's true, if that's true, every ought that the unbeliever has, he has illegitimately. His worldview doesn't account for it. Here's what makes this a transcendental argument. 
Okay. The, 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 the idea of a transcendental argument is this. My argument is transcendent if, in order to argue against it, my opponent has to assume what I'm saying is true. Does that make sense? Okay. So, the unbeliever wants to argue against what I'm saying. So what's he going to say? You're wrong. That's not true. As soon as he says that, what does he imply? And ought. That's only just happens on my worldview. He has to assume my worldview in order to protest my worldview. Does that make sense? And he can't get away from it. Trying as hard as he wants, he can't get... Every time he opens his mouth to show me why I'm wrong, he has to assume that I'm right. To prove that I'm wrong. And that's a really difficult position to be in. Does that make sense? A transcendental argument is so devastatingly powerful because in order to dispute it, you have to assume it first. You see what Van Til is saying when he says that the unbeliever has to... It, it's like a little girl who has to sit on her grandfather's lap in order to slap his face. The, the, the unbeliever can't make his attempt to slap at God unless God was holding him up in the first place. And that's true not just ontologically. In other words, it's, it's not only true that the unbeliever depends on God for his very existence, but the unbeliever's argument itself against God depends on God existing. Okay? Is that... And it, it takes a... This is, this is a little out there, but when you get it, you recognize how devastating this is. That, that everything the unbeliever thinks is important only makes sense on my worldview. Right? What sort of things do the unbeliever does the unbeliever think is important? It's anything. There's billions of things you could come up with. Safety. Safety. Okay. Um. So so let's let's take I'm gonna, I'll play the atheist. Okay. Um. So I think we need to have. Uh, laws that, that people need to wear their seatbelts. There's an ought there. Okay. For, for whatever it's worth. Okay, so I'm the atheist, and I think we need to have seatbelt laws because we need to keep people safe. So you ask me what? Why? Why should we keep people safe? Well, uh, I'm an evolutionist, and, and evolutionists, uh, my ultimate value is survival. It is, it, and, and, and so just as a species, I want our species to survive. And that's why we should have safety. And your, your question is? Why? Why should we survive? Why are we any more valuable than any other species? In fact, I heard a debate one time, and, the, and that's exactly the right question. You want to push people back, and they can't, on their own worldview, account for why we're more important than any other species. Um, <clears throat> that it becomes purely relative. Why do they think we should survive? Well, because they're, they're, we're one of us. But it's purely relative at that point. Do you, do you see that? 
And, and um, I, heard a, I heard a debate uh, online. Uh, Paul Manata, M-A-N-A-T-A, is a Christian, uh, debating a guy named Dan Barker, who used to be a, um, a pastor and now writes books on atheism, books pro-atheism. And uh, Manada did his research, Barker didn't, and it's always fun to hear debates when one guy did, did the research and the other guy didn't. So Manada did his research, and he found in Barker's uh, books a, a quote saying, basically, that we value our own species because we're our own species, but really, no form of life has any more value than any other form of life. And so, and so uh, they had cross-examination time. And Manata asked Barker, um, is it wrong to eat broccoli for pleasure? And, and Barker was like, no. And, and, and Manata says, well, is it wrong to eat children for pleasure? And Barker was like, yes, that, you know, that's repulsive, whatever. And Manata called him out on it. Given his own framework, where all life is equally valuable, it is immoral to eat broccoli. Right? It is immoral to eat broccoli. You know, you are killing that broccoli. You are mauling it between your molars. You know, that's <laughs> oh, the, you, not the humanity, the broccoli. Um, the gruesome, green, mushy death of the broccoli. Um, but on the unbelieving worldview, the only reason that we object to the eating of children is that we're human and we kind of value our own species. But the universe doesn't care. The universe doesn't care. And in an ultimate sense, is the broccoli any less valuable than the person in an ultimate sense on an atheist worldview? And the answer is no. None of it means anything. And so my desire for... Uh, Seatbelt laws, because I want the preservation of the human race. It, do, do you see this whole island of rationality floating on a sea of irrationality theme coming back? I, I'm building this wonderful structure, this, this very rigidly ordered worldview of what our lives ought to be like. And like I said, it can be, it could be a conservative. We ought to be moral, and we ought to be. Uh, for traditional marriage and for good homes and, and, and good laws and whatever, you know, wave the flag, rah, rah, America. It can be that kind of worldview, or it could be save the spotted owl and, and women should be able to have abortions and, and whatever. None of those worldviews, all of those oughts are meaningless in a worldview of matter, motion, time, and chance. They don't mean anything. And so what I'm trying to do as an apologist is expose the unbeliever's odds. And the reality is, here's, here's what's fun. What unbeliever has no odds? And the answer? None. They all do. And, 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 and where it gets even more fun, do, are there people today, are there unbelievers today that say they have no ought? They say they do, right? They're relativists. Hey, you know, if it works for you, man, whatever. If that's true for you, that's true for you. Uh, morality is all about what, what works for you. Um, 
you know, beauty is totally in the eye of the beholder. You know, if you like that, that's fine. I like this, and we're all good. Does he really believe that that values are purely relative? And 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 that's the truest test of his his of his belief in relativity is when I infringe if if my delight makes him discomfort. Uh, uncomfortable. Uh, somehow, for some reason, his his relativity evaporates, right? Uh, if I tell him, you know, really, on your worldview, the value of the life of your daughter and the value of this uh, stock of broccoli is really the same. Given your worldview, I think this broccoli is just as valuable as your son. He knows better than to think that's acceptable. I've done this. Uh, I have a guy who's next to me. He's a non-believer. He says uh, it makes me uncomfortable to talk about God mm -hmm. at work, and I'm like, well, what does it matter? <laughs> Why should I care? Sure, because in your worldview, I shouldn't even care whether you it does make you uncomfortable or not. Yeah, give me. What does it make? It? No, that doesn't mean anything to me then in your world. Sure. Now, and, and, and here's, here, here's the, the, the thing you want to keep going back to. On my worldview, does it make a difference if he's uncomfortable? It does. Manners mean something on a Christian worldview, right? Um, good etiquette means something on a Christian worldview. Um, truth means something on a Christian worldview, right? On an unbelieving worldview, if I lie or if I use... Poor argumentation. Does it really matter? Well, no. Nothing matters, right? But on a Christian worldview, I'm bound to a higher standard than that. Um, and what I what I want to get him to acknowledge over and over again is that everything that he thinks is important demands my worldview to have a foundation. Now. Uh, let me clarify something here. Can the unbeliever know right and wrong? Yes, he can, right? There are unbelievers that have a very finely tuned moral sense. Um, <clears throat> some because of the household they were raised in, some because they had a lot of exposure to the, the Bible and Christianity. Um, you know, you, there, there are some... Uh, for instance, I, I, I don't listen to a lot of talk radio, but, but um, my dad does. And, and so you listen to a guy like Bill Bennett. You know, he writes the Book of Virtues, and, and, and he's you know, argues for what we would consider largely Why does Bill Bennett argue for conservative positions? Because he's a Roman Catholic, right? And, and so he's, he's got a lot of biblically-influenced ideas. Now, if he's a good Roman Catholic and believes what the Roman Catholic Church believes, I think he's, I think he's um, very egregiously wrong about the gospel. But he's got a finely tuned moral sense, right? Unbelievers can know what's right and wrong. Can unbelievers, in a relative way, do what's right? Relatively, yes. Relatively, yes, right? There are unbelievers that live moral lives, right? And, and you probably know unbelievers 
that, that are more consistently trustworthy than some people that are members of your church. The question is not whether the unbeliever can know what's right or wrong, or whether the unbeliever can do what's right. The question is whether the unbeliever has the wherewithal within his own worldview to account for any of that. That's an important distinction to make. We are not saying that unbelievers have no moral compass. We are not saying that, that unbelievers just consistently are the most immoral people in the world. Both of those claims are demonstrably false. Right? What we're saying is that, given the equipment, given the furniture in their worldview, they have no basis for those things. They don't make, they're actually being inconsistent with their own worldview when they say something is right or wrong whether that be something that they think is just absolutely true, whether they think that's something that you ought to do, or whether they say that sunset is gorgeous. That statement on an unbelieving worldview, what, when they say that sunset is gorgeous, where is the ought there? What is the implied ought? You ought to think that that's gorgeous, right? Um, and, and again, we may not agree with where they put their ought. You know, they may play a, a CD and go, that is just gorgeous music, and you listen to it and you go, that is not gorgeous music. Or they may say, this poetry is amazing, and you go, that poetry is sentimental, frothy nonsense, right? And it may be sentimental, frothy nonsense, but the fact that they think it, it, it reflects something real and universal is something that makes no sense on their worldview, right? Does this make sense so far? What we're driving at as apologists and why we're driving that direction? As a relative, no. Uh, what you said does not make sense. I'm an unbelieving worldview, Kevin. There is The reason that the Christian worldview accounts for these things, because that's, the, that's the follow up question. Why is it then that the Christian worldview does account for these things? Because we're accountable. We are? Okay, so that's one reason. Okay? And the unbeliever uh, suppresses the truth because he doesn't want to be accountable. And this is a very important reason. Okay? Why, why is there ought on a Christian worldview? Well, because God is judge. Alright? Now, there are some that will say that's a, that's a really morally inferior reason for doing anything. Okay, well, this goes back to Kant. Kant said, anything you do with the idea of being rewarded cannot be virtuous. So Kant says, if you help the old lady walk across the street because the lady is a multimillionaire and you're hoping she tips you, it cannot be a moral action. 
It is something is only moral if you don't receive anything for it. Is that biblical? Certainly not, right? Jesus said stuff like, anyone who forsakes houses or lands or family for my sake, what? Will receive a hundredfold in the kingdom. Does Jesus appeal to our desire for reward? He does, actually. Does he threaten us with punishment if we do not obey? Yes. And, and so, we, this is another one of those instances. We, we need to be careful that we're not more Christ-like than Christ. Right? Um, where we say, uh, to obey just because we're threatened is somehow bad. You know what? If that were bad, Jesus wouldn't have said it. Okay? Now, maybe there are higher motivations than that. But we, we cannot say that that's an, that's an unbiblical motivation because... It's biblical, <laughs> right? It's right there. So, so one of the reasons that we obey, um, one of the reasons that there's an ought is that God will judge. Another reason that there's an ought in a Christian world is that because of the creator-creature distinction, Everything in creation is what it is. Why? Because God has said so. Which means that... Now, now this is... Let's look at the implications of this. If there is no creator-creature distinction, and everything that is just is, what is... Is the universe ultimately personal or impersonal? In, in, a, in a world that just is. It's ultimately impersonal. In other words, personality can be explained in terms of impersonal forces. Matter, motion, time, and chance. Right? The, the atheist believes that human personality really is all about chemical reactions in the brain. Right? Impersonal things. The scientist is never happy with, uh, well, why did that happen? Well, because I chose to. You know, that never seems to be a really... So, so we have to be able to reduce... So it gets, you know, the homosexuality issue. It, it can't be enough that someone chose that. We have to be able to reduce it to an impersonal cause in order for it to be scientific. Right? Make sense? An unbelieving worldview? Everything has to reduce the impersonal forces because everything is ultimately matter, motion, time, and chance. On a believing worldview, in which this cart is here, ultimately, why? Because God said it's here. What is final, personality or impersonality? Personality. In other words, that's not here because it's here. It's here because God said it's here. Personality allows me to have an ought. Impersonality does not. Does that make sense? Is never pre presents obligations on me. And, and someone could argue, argue with me on that. Um, for instance, if there were a boulder rushing down toward me right now, 
and it's going to crush me if I stand in its way. What should I do? I should get out of the way. But, but if everything is matter, motion, time, and chance, and there's a boulder rolling down the hill at me, is there anything in a material universe that says I ought to move? I mean, it seems from my personal self-interest, I ought to move. But there's nothing that there's nothing in a in a material sense that has an ought, right? If I get run over, well, that happened. If I move, well, that happened. There's no ought. There's only an ought if the universe is finally at bottom personal, and the universe is personal because. God has said. So, so, intellect is not about my mind connecting with impersonal things out there. Right? We talked about knowledge is, I know that thing's there, not because my mind connects to the thing out there, but because my mind reflects what? What's in God's mind. There's the ought of the intellect. Does that make sense? The, the whole, I ought to believe X, whatever X is, the obligation of that ought is only there in a world in which things are what they are because God said so. If things just are what they are, there's no ought. Right? Morality is clearly along these lines. Why, why ought I not murder well, because murder is a violation of the character of God. In a personal universe, that is reason for me not to do that. In an impersonal universe, what one bag of protein does to another bag of protein really doesn't matter much. Right? And certainly, uh, our aesthetic considerations have to be based on ultimate personality, right? Why are sunsets beautiful? I'm going to say ultimately because God thinks sunsets are beautiful. Um, that that and, and how do I know that God thinks sunsets are beautiful? Or or how do I know what God thinks is beautiful? I, I think there's some of that, but we could very quickly slip into just unbridled relativity there. Because we're created in his image, <clears throat> we carry the, the sense that he has of... Again, I think that's true, but we could very quickly slip into, in, into just pure subjectivity. Mm -hmm. What? How do I know the sort of things that God thinks are beautiful? Where, where has God told me his mind? In the, in the Bible. Right? Does the Bible give me some clues about what God thinks is beautiful? How do I know that God thinks that the, the world that he created is beautiful? He said it was good. Right? And in fact, in the Psalms, God is compared to various natural wonders, right? How do I know that the right response to a mountain is awe and majesty? Well, I kind of do it intrinsically, but God has also told me that that's the right response. 
And that, frankly, if someone can walk through the, the Alps and go, eh, you know, whatever, there's something wrong with that person. An unbelieving worldview doesn't allow me to say that that person's defective. A believing worldview allows me to say, rightly, dude, you're messed up. Okay, that's the serious theological language right there. <laughs> All right, does this make sense? I want to drive the unbeliever to, to reveal his oughts. And then I want to challenge him to account for those oughts in an impersonal universe. Um, in, in, a, in a universe with no creator-creature distinction. And, and what you're going to find is that he's going to spin his wheels. He knows there's oughts. He knows, even if he has the wrong ones, he knows there's oughts. But his worldview won't account for him. And, and so when he starts arguing against your worldview, which has all sorts of, his arguments against you are loaded with ought. Right? Christianity can't be true because God uh, commanded uh, the Israelites to wipe out the Amalekites, and that's evil. Uh, evil, how, how do you get evil on your worldview there, sir? What do you mean, evil? Tell me about evil. Oh, evil, that's one of my categories. Right? Now, we can talk about that, right? and we're going to talk about internal critiques of Christianity. There are some times that the unbeliever says, Mr. Mr. Believer, based on your categories, Christianity contradicts itself. We're going to talk about that. Okay? But what, what we're looking at right now is, on the unbeliever's worldview, he doesn't, have, he doesn't have ground to attack your worldview. When he tries to attack your worldview, he's assuming your worldview. That's the transcendental argument for the existence of God. All right. Any quick questions? Brainful? Anyone ready to go home? All right.